All right, so we are continuing our sermon series entitled Love Is. So I thought I would start out with a story about my very first love. Have I got a little popping going back here? We're good. Um, When I was in the sixth grade, I had my very first crush. His name was Ken Johnson. I hope that he does not listen to this sermon online. (laughs) But anyway, his name is, all right, Joseph is trying to tell me something. Was it my earring? All right, I'm good, I'm good. Uh, Sometimes our earrings make noises with the little uh, microphones there. But anyway, I'm hoping Ken Johnson is not watching this because I would be terribly embarrassed. But anyway, I have no idea where he is right now. But his name was Ken Johnson. I was in the sixth grade, and it was my first crush. See if y'all can relate to this, any of you who were over, you know, sixth grade, 12 years old. I remember that when I would see Ken Johnson walking down the hall, that my heart would just start racing. I would remember that I would like, I would like just want to be with him. Like I would want to be, like if he was eating at lunch, like I wanted to be near him. I wanted him to see me. And, and what was so crazy about this was I had never experienced this flood of just, you know, whatever this hijack was that was taken over my body. I was a little freaked out. Like, you know, am I crazy? I, I did not know that other people have this same experience. I thought something was just, you know, wacko going on with me. Now, my daddy, who was a little bit of a jokester, he must have figured out that I had a crush. And it might have been because I talked about Ken Johnson all the time, you know. I don't know. But anyway, but one day my dad, we were sitting there, I remember we were in the den, and he said, Fran, he said, let me ask you a question. He said, "Um, when you see Ken walking down the hall, he said, do you find that your heart just starts beating faster? And I looked at my daddy like, oh, what are you, some kind of psychic? And he, and he said, do you find that sometimes like you want to go talk to him, but then when you open your mouth, you can't figure out what to say, and then you say something stupid? And I was like, oh, how did you know, Daddy? And I mean, he just went on and on and on. And, and in that moment, I was like, how does my Daddy know about all this? And then I was embarrassed. And Daddy was so sweet. He just kind of laughed, and he said, Fran, he said, I remember feeling that too the first time I fell in love with the girl. And I was just about your age. And I remember a couple of things happened all at the same time. But one was there was this feeling that, oh, I'm not crazy. This is normal. Then two, there was this feeling of embarrassment, like, oh my gosh, my daddy knows how I feel. And then the other thing was, I can't believe my daddy had a girlfriend that wasn't my mama. That is really weird. So, (laughs) but for those of you who have ever had that experience, you kind of know that almost like your brain gets hijacked. Now, here's the thing. Do you know that neurologists and people who study the brain people that this is their area, that actually there is something literally going on in your brain when you are falling in love. Do do y'all know this? How many of you ever heard the phrase love is blind? Have you ever heard this? Have you ever been like in love with somebody? Maybe it was a first crush. Maybe you were a teenager and all of a sudden you are madly in love with this person. They have no flaws whatsoever. They hang the moon. You can only think about them. And then maybe, I don't know, six months later, a year later, it's like all of a sudden, I don't know, your, your real brain, your thinking brain kind of clicks on and you go, huh, this person is not at all who I thought they were, <laughs> you know, and the relationship goes south. Have y'all, have y'all, anybody, anybody ever had that happen? Okay, I do see a few hands and I know some of your stories. It's like, no, you should have raised your hand. But anyway, but here is what scientists tell us is going on in the brain. So they do, they, they, there's several studies, but this particular study 
uh, occurred in Britain. But anyway, they had, they invited people who were romantically involved with somebody, kind of in the throes of that new love. And so they brought them into the lab and they took MRIs of their brain. They were watching like, what's happening in your brain? And they would show them random pictures. So some would be like a picture of somebody they didn't know, what might be a picture of a classmate, it might be a picture. But when they showed the picture of the person that they were romantically involved with, do you know what happened? Here's what happened. Two things at the exact same time. One is the part of your brain that experiences pleasure, the part of your brain that like kicks out some hormones. These are the, this is the stuff that make you feel good. One is called oxytocin. The other one is dopamine. These are like the pleasure centers of the brain, the feel good. This is what gives you that sense of euphoria. So what they said, that part of the brain was just lighting up all over the place. And it's the same emotion that you get. And I thought this was crazy as when you are taking drugs or on cocaine. Did y'all know that? That's right. That is what is happening to your brain. It is drugged, it is drugged, it is drugged, and it is glorious for anybody who's ever been there. I know that uh, when my girls were in college, I could always tell when they had a new boyfriend because they were just happy. And they would call me, and I mean, the sky was blue, the rainbows, the glitters, the unicorns, the whole thing. And I'd get off the phone, and I'd tell Mark, I said, "Mm, she's got a new boyfriend. And Mark would say, how did you know? Did she tell you? I said, "Mm, I hear it. She's in love. <laughs> but anyway, but that's what is happening in the brain. They tell us that when they do the, the brain scans of new moms, that the exact same thing happens. That that the pleasure center, the reward center, uh, it's the same thing. One, one, one study even said it's like when you win the lottery and you have this unexpected money and you have that feeling of, oh my gosh, this is great. They said the same thing happens to, to new moms when they look at pictures of their babies. Now, here's the other thing that happens that you might not know. That's all the good stuff. Here's the other thing that happens, and this is why we make bad relationship decisions sometimes, is that we have something in our brain. It's called the prefrontal cortex. This is a part of your brain where you make good social decisions. So this is the part of your brain that says, ooh, I see the flaws in that person, and so I kind of need to pump the brakes right here. That's the part of your brain that says, ooh, I don't know if that's the right person I need to be committing to, but here's what happens. It's like a switch. That thing gets switched off. It just gets switched off. So that's why we make these bad relationship decisions is because I am falling in love. I have all the good stuff going on, but that part of me that says, ooh, you know, hang on. Let, you know, I'm, seeing the, I'm seeing the gaps between, you know, who this person, you know, who, who you expect and who you want to have in a relationship and uh, the person, what you're experiencing. Does that make sense? We call it the love, the, the brain, you know, what is it? Love is blind. And that is why. That is why a mom, when her kid, her two-year-old is having a massive temper tantrum, kicking and screaming on the floor, and everybody in the room is going, that mama needs to do something right there. And the mom goes, oh, she's just tired. You know, (laughs) she's just hungry. So that's why we give the benefit of the doubt when we are in love. We see people in their best light, and we tend to not focus on the negative. So what does that have to do with our sermon series today? Today, we are digging into another part of 1 Corinthians 13, and we are looking at a phrase that says, love believes all things, hopes all 
all things, endures all things. And so we are looking at this aspect of love that when I read it, I said, Paul, what you are describing here is an oxytocin, dopamine-drugged mother or, or two young lovers, you know, that, that, that it's like, yeah, it's all great. I'm going to put up with anything. I'm going to bear all things, believe all things, hope all things. But as we talked about uh, two weeks ago when I preached, the context of who this letter is written to, the context, the recipients of this poem are not two young star-crossed lovers. It is not a young mom, though there are applications there. Paul is writing this to a church that is in conflict. He is writing this message to a church that is quarreling, a church that is divisive. There are factions within the church. They are disagreeing over who is the most spiritual, which spiritual gifts are the best. They are they are discussing and fighting and quarreling over kind of who is the most spiritual and can we eat this food or can we not eat that food? They're, they're coming together as a community and it's not going too well. And so this founding pastor is writing to the recipients there in Corinth and is saying, love is supreme. All of life needs to be filtered through this love. And so for you and me, um, we do not have these, these drugged brains going on. We are living in the real world. And that's what we're talking about today is what do you do when you are in a relationship with someone and there is a gap between what your expectations are and what your experience is. So what do I mean by this? Every relationship that you have, there are expectations associated. So whether you are at work and you are a supervisor, you have expectations that the, that the person that reports to you, that, that you know, if they say, hey, I'm going to have this report ready for you uh, by 5 o'clock on Thursday, you have an expectation that they're going to do that. If you are working on a committee here with someone at the church and they say, hey, I'm going to, uh, you know, contact everybody on the list and let them know about the upcoming upcoming meeting that we're having. You have an expectation that that is what they're going to do. Whether you are in a sorority, a fraternity, whether you are married, whether you're a parent, um, whether it is your neighbor, every relationship has these expectations and then there is the experience. So my question for you and kind of what we're drilling down today is in the, rea in the real world that we live in where our brain is not drugged up, and there is a gap between your expectation of what this person should be delivering, what they have promised, what you have hoped for, when there's a gap between that and what you are experiencing, how do you fill in the blank. So with that, I want us to look at what Paul tells us because I think he gives us some insights that, um, that maybe aren't exactly what you expected to hear, but I think if we kind of unpack these phrases, it's going to give us some tools and kind of a, some mindsets that the, the sermon today is love thinks. It's going to give us some mindsets of kind of how to mentally work through the gap. So let's dig in here. Love is and here are the things that, that Paul tells us about love. Love bears all things, it believes all things, 
It hopes all things and endures all things. I want you to think, if you can right now, are you in a relationship where you are experiencing a gap? There is a gap between what your expectations and hopes are and what your experience is. So if you can bring that that scenario to mind, this is kind of what we're talking about right here. The first thing that Paul tells us and the last thing that he tells us there, he says, love bears all things, and love endures all things. So think about those as almost bookends. The the words are very similar. The meaning is very similar. But basically, he is talking about your present reality. Right now, in the present, it is hard. Uh, The Corinthian people, right now, in their church, it was hard. They were having to bear up. They were having to endure a church that was, that was, uh, there were these factions. They were, they were at odds with one another. There was quarreling. For those who were living in that community, even if you weren't a part of the two people that were at odds with one another, that dynamic is spilling out. So this is a hard time for the church relationally. And so what Paul is saying, this is your present. I want you to endure and I want you to bear up in all things, no matter how bad it gets. I want you to not throw in the towel. So let's look at Jesus. Jesus is, how did Jesus model this? The writer of Hebrews tells us that we are to look at Jesus. We are to fix our eyes on him. We are to fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. And the scripture says, for the joy set before him, and here it is, it's the same word in the Greek there. It says that he endured the cross. He endured the cross. Jesus went to the cross for love, for love. It was painful. It was sacrificial. It was for us. And that is that kind of endurance that Paul is saying, I want your love for one another to be sacrificial, just like Jesus's love was sacrificial for you. And it goes on and it says, consider him, speaking of Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That same word there, he endured hostility. And I think about Jesus um, as he was dying on the cross. The the writers, the, the New Testament writers who describe that day tell us that there were soldiers, there were people who were hurling insults at him. He was falsely accused. He did not deserve. He was to die on the cross. He was innocent. And so it's that idea that even when injustices are being done against me, even when it is difficult, even when it's painful, even when it is hard, Christ calls me to love supremely. So, for some of you, you're, you're, I can hear it, you, I can hear it, you're thinking, yeah, but you don't know what happened to me. You don't know what this person did. You don't know what that person said. But Paul is saying, I kind of don't care right here. I want you to endure and to bear up and to love in all things. Then what he does is he gives us the middle part, and this is kind of the mindset. This is that whole idea of love thinks. He said this is kind of what's going to give you the energy, that that attitude, that ability to bear up, and it's two things. He said love believes all things, and love 
hopes all things. He gives us these two verbs, love believes and hopes. Now, I think for me, when I read this at first blush, what I think, and maybe you think this way too, is like, okay, so that means that no matter what this person has done to me, I still have to keep, um, you know, putting up with that what, whatever that behavior is that's causing the gap. Does that make sense? So what that means is I still have to keep putting up with that behavior because I'm believing and hoping and trusting, well, next time they're going to get it right. You know, but, but think about that just for a second. Are we sure that's what God is saying? Think about if you are a parent and you have a, a, a young adult and they are in a romantic relationship with you and that child comes home and says to you, yeah, well, my boyfriend or my girlfriend, yeah, they, they tell me that they're going to, um, uh, you know, show up or come over. And then a lot of times they just don't, but it's okay. It's okay. And, and, you know, I was looking at my boyfriend or my girlfriend's phone and they were texting somebody else and they said, they said, they're just friends. It's okay. It's okay. But there is this pattern of unfaithfulness that your your child's uh, significant other keeps demonstrating. It is a pattern over and over and over. What do you want for your child? You want your child to get out of that relationship. They can still love that person, but you don't want them to continue entrusting and relying and increasing their commitment level. So I don't think that Paul is saying, I want you to be blind in your love right now. I think he's saying, I want you to think, but here is the mindset. No matter how wide the gap is, no matter how big the gap is between the expectation and the behavior, I want you to have faith faith that there is no one who is so far from God's grace that God's grace is not greater still. There is no one that God has given up on. There is no one that I can't have hope for a time of redemption, a time of where, where things are going to get better. I'm not going to give up hope. So that is the mindset. I believe it is that we have faith and we have hope, not in the individual, because individuals will disappoint you. Uh, you know, I will disappoint you. Uh, others will. Your spouse will. Your children will. So I don't think that the writer is saying there, have hope in the perfection of the person that, that it's, you know, that, that next time they're not going to drop the ball again, because there's a strong reality that they very well might drop the ball again. But your mindset is to hope and have faith in a God who gets the last word, a God who never gives up on anyone. So in that context, so we are going to endure, we are going to bear up, we are going to have hope and faith and trust in God's goodness. We're not going to give up on this person. We're not going to write them off. We're not going to necessarily just completely cut them out of our life. But what are we to do with the gap? And so what I want to share with you are three mindsets that have helped me. Uh, <clears throat> I always want to have a disclosure here. I am not practicing these perfectly. This is like my North Star where I'm trying to go. So I share these with you in hopes that th these three mindsets might help you as well to manage the gap. And the first one is this. It is have a mindset of generosity 
rather than criticism. Generosity rather than criticism. So when there is the gap, uh, when the person says, hey, uh, you know, I'm going to have this report to you on Thursday at 5 o'clock. Thursday at 5 o'clock comes and they don't have the report. Or maybe it is some your husband and he said, hey, I'm going to pick up groceries and you get home and there are no groceries. You know your own scenarios. You know what what are what is in your gap right now. So what is a person who has, I think, a love mindset. Uh, they're thinking the way that love would have us think. It's this. What is the most generous exclamation, that, uh, explanation that I can come up with to explain why there is a gap between the expectation and my experience? Um, it might be that, you know, this person has a very good explanation, a very good reason, because what we so often do is we go to criticism and kind of a suspicious and a critical spirit first. It's like, well, I don't know. They're just slack. They're just, and then you begin to come up with, you already talked about scorekeeping. That's when you pull out that negative scorecard and that you have all these, it's like you're, you're just coming up with this account against them. There is that criticism. Why is this so important? It's because people can feel it when you're being critical of them. People can feel it when you're being generous to, towards them. When you are giving people the benefit of the doubt, when you are looking at the situation with the most generous possible explanation, they feel accepted. They feel loved. And more often than not, they don't want to disappoint you. Now, some people, they don't care. But so often, that feeling of generosity and hope and, and, and I want to have the best you know, I, I, what's the best explanation here I can come up with? It causes people often to respond back favorably. So the first thing is have a mindset of generosity over criticism. All right, the second mindset that I want to encourage you to have is this, is curiosity rather than gossip. So this one is hard. And I wish I could say I just manage this one perfectly all the time, but let me just say I'm working on it. And um, But this is the whole idea that when there is a gap, so what, what do I normally want to do? What do you want to do when someone has let you down, they've made a promise, they haven't kept it, they've done something, and you have got that irritation, that anger, that, that you know what I'm talking about? You know what my everything inside of me wants to do? I want to go find somebody else and tell them and get them mad with me. Now, why do we do that? Does, am I the only one? Okay, anybody? Okay, can we just all have some? Yeah, okay. We, we, all right, hands up. Let's all, <laughs> hands up. Here, here's why we do this is because in that moment, if you are feeling angry, you're feeling irritable, these are not pleasant emotions. They are not pleasant emotions. And somehow you want to discharge those. You want to get them out. You want to do something with it. And there is something that is soothing about discharging that anger sideways. Does that make sense? Because if I'm angry, if I can give you a little bit of my anger and I can get you mad, too, then I don't quite feel as angry. It helps lessen. It helps decrease that emotion so often. And so that's what I want to do is I want to gossip. But the, the love mindset is this. Practice 
curiosity. So what this would look like is doing the hard thing and confronting the person. And it said, I'm going to go back to the, you know, the report, because that's kind of the idea. So, so curiosity would be, hey, you told me that you would have this report done by Thursday at five o'clock, and, I, and it didn't happen, and then I noticed last Thursday it didn't happen or whatever. Um, a, a good phrase to use is, help me understand what got in the way. So with that, you're not accusing the person, you're not, you're not demonizing them, you're not being critical, but you're saying, I have, I'm gonna, I have the most, my mindset towards you is one of generosity. I am believing that you have a really awesome reason. I just want to hear that. Help me understand. Now, a little funny story about this phrase. As a staff here, we are um, working through a book. It's entitled uh, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And so we've been working through this. And one of the things, they have these different dysfunctions. And so we did this self-assessment where we kind of assessed ourselves and how are we doing in terms of these dysfunctions. Now, what was very interesting to me was that we scored as a group really high on trust and, you know, we get along well together, we share stories with one another, we experience, you know, we admit it when we make a mistake, we help each other, we're not territorial. All those we scored very, very high. The one that we did scored, I mean, like almost a zero on, to be honest, is that we do not do very well when it comes to holding peers accountable. We are very uncomfortable on average as a staff with having critical, you know, hard conversations with confronting one another, kind of going to one another. And so we were talking about this in staff, and I said, well, you know, a good way to kind of ease the conversation is to say, hey, I was going to see if I could maybe circle back to what happened last week, and, and I was just curious, help me understand what got in the way. So we're sitting there, and I can notice some people were writing that phrase down. And then Ashley Griffin, who's our youth pastor, he said, uh-uh, uh-uh. Hey, Ashley's not in here, is he? I, <laughs> so we, we just talk about him. But anyway, Ashley was like, no. He goes, he goes, I don't need any of this. Let's circle around and help me know what got in the way. He said, no, I am a rip-it-off Band-Aid kind of guy. He said, if I didn't do something, he said, I need you to just come in my office, tell me, and just rip that Band-Aid off. So whether you are a rip-the-Band-Aid person off or whether you're going to tiptoe around a little bit, I think a love mindset is I'm going to go and talk to you first. I'm going to have the, give you the most generous uh, possible, you know, my, my attitude towards you is, is generosity, and then I'm going to go and have that hard conversation with you rather than gossiping about you. Because when you think about the Corinthian church, that was a part of their problem. There was all this division, all this divisiveness, and gossip just fuels that. It doesn't help oneness and unity. So generosity rather than criticism, curiosity rather than gossip. And here's the last one that I think sometimes is hard for us as Christians as well. And it is this, boundaries rather than rejection. Boundaries rather than rejection. So when someone has, there, there is a gap between your expectations and what you've experienced. And when that gap, uh, there becomes a pattern with that gap, there needs to be possibly where you draw some boundaries about what you will or will not allow in the relationship. You can still stay connected to the person. You can still love the person. You can still believe 
believe all things, hope all things, endure all things, but you can also draw some boundaries. So an example um, that has been hard for me, uh, and this is a ministry example because the context here is talking about the Corinthian church. Um, over the course of, of my ministry, I have been the director of, of children's ministry in one church. I've done some volunteer work um, with youth ministry, but um, over the course of, of my ministry, I have had to ask three volunteers to step down. In fact, I didn't ask them to. I required three volunteers to step down from serving in my area. And all three, it was over the exact same thing. Um, in the Methodist Church and here at Martha Bowman and the other churches where I have served, we all have something that is required by the United Methodist Church, and it's called our Safe Sanctuary Policy. And this is a policy uh, that basically says, here are some of the things and the rules or the policies that we're going to put into place to protect anyone who is a minor in any of our programs. So anyone from, you know, newborn all the way up to 18 years old, we're going to put some policies in place to say, we want to do the very best job that we can to ensure that your child is safe when they are on our campus, when they are in our, when we have responsibility. We want to make sure they're safe physically. We want to make sure they are safe emotionally. We want to make sure they are safe sexually. We want to make sure they are safe uh, spiritually in every way. And so we have these policies. And in all three circumstances, um, the volunteer was refusing to abide by some of the policies policies that we had. Probably one of the hardest cases um, was, was, and I'm going to change up a few little details here, so this isn't a real lie. This is just kind of fabricating a little bit here and there, so it could never be known who this person was if the story got out. But but here's kind of the general gist of the story. This was a, a, a married man who was a volunteer in our program, and one of our policies is, is that in our discipleship programs with our teens is that the girls in the program are discipled by our female um, volunteers and staff. So in other words, if you have a small group, if a young lady has something going on in her world, she would not necessarily call, you know, any of the men in the program, you know, kind of her first point of contact, those heart-to-heart -heart deep conversations would always be with one of the women who is either a volunteer or on staff. And the same for the guys. We, you know, guys minister to guys, girls minister to girls. That doesn't mean we don't do things as a group, or, but it's like on average, that's what you do. Another policy policy that we have in place is that you never are alone with any of our, you know, with anyone under 18. You always have two non-related adults at all times with any of the kids. And so these are just basic policies that we have. So this particular volunteer, uh, though beloved, the kids loved him, volunteers loved him, I loved him, awesome, gifted, talented, wonderful. But what he had a propensity to do was to keep pursuing the young female teenagers. And this would look like getting engaged and counseling them um, and sometimes, you know, texting at 1 and 2 o'clock in the morning, maybe going by their house, picking them up, taking them to go out to eat, you know, lunch and have coffee, but with no other adults around. So we talked to this gentleman, and so what was, so here, here Here's an expectation of what is in our safe sanctuary policy. Here is what we are experiencing. So our first course of conduct was to have generosity rather than criticism. Well, maybe he doesn't understand. Maybe he doesn't 
doesn't know. So that was our first course to say, hey, want to make sure you understand the policy. You know, seeing the pictures on Facebook, I've had some complaints for concerns from parents and things have come to my attention. So want to help you understand that's really not in agreement with how we want to create this safe environment. So at that point, I've moved with a mindset of love. But here is what happened next, was he was not happy with our policy. He felt like that policy was ridiculous. He felt like he was having an impact on these teenage girls. And maybe he was, I don't know. But next, I, he said, basically... Uh, not going to do it. And so we continued to see pictures on Facebook of him spending time alone with teenage girls. It's a you know, middle-aged married man. And so what I had to do next was come back and say, you know, I love you. You were one of our most gifted, talented volunteers, but here's what our policy says. And so at this time, um, I'm going to ask and require that you no longer serve on any of our ministry teams that deal with our youth and children. Now, you can still serve as a greeter. You can still serve. There are lots of other places. You're not being kicked out of the church. I love you. But in this area, because you've not abided by our policies, we are no longer going to allow you to serve. So with that, uh, this gentleman was not happy with my response. And so uh, I got defriended on Facebook, which I thought was my first person to ever. I was like, he did not defriend me. I said, and this is literally what I said. Somebody said, uh, and I said, I know he's mad at me, but he wouldn't defriend me. I bet it is a virus in, in Facebook. And it accidentally, and I remember a couple of the, they were like, oh, friend, you are so naive. No, you just got defriended. Just accept it. But then there were some pretty ugly things said on Facebook and some things that weren't true. So my propensity, my nature was I wanted to gossip. Oh, my gosh, I wanted to tell others, and I wanted to bring others into my heart and my anger. And I wish I could say I did it perfectly. I did not. But my heart and kind of where I kept trying to push myself was I want to practice, um, you know, generosity over criticism, but then boundaries over rejection. I wanted to keep the relationship if I could, but what was my higher priority was making sure that we managed the gap in a way that was responsible and healthy for the ministry. So does that make sense? So I think when Paul says love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things endures all, all things, he is saying we never give up on anyone because here's the great news. Jesus has not given up on me yet. I am not perfect, and, and I know you are not either, and we don't need to give up on one another, but sometimes we do need to have the hard conversations rather than gossiping with our friends. We need to see the most generous ex explanation rather than being critical, but then sometimes we do need to draw boundaries rather than just rejecting and writing someone off. And there's a big difference. So just imagine if Corinth had put these principles into practice, how might that have changed the tone and the feel and kind of what they are experiencing? Isn't that great news? And as you read 2 Corinthians, which is the second letter to this church, you see that they have made some changes. What about your life and my life? What about Martha Bowman? What about your work environment? What about your family? What about your school, depending on, you know, what, where you are in life and kind of what those groups are. How might those relationships become healthier if you have that love mindset that Paul invites us to do?